One of uh, John Cusack's best movies, in my opinion, maybe my favorite John Cusack movie, is one of his later ones, a movie called Martian Child. And if you haven't seen it, I'll try not to ruin it for you. But the basic plot is that Cusack is a successful science fiction novelist. He's single, and he wants to adopt a child, and so he does. He adopts an orphan boy who was a little older and, because of some personal problems, difficult to place. And so without giving away the plot too much, one of the themes in the movie is this little boy learning the difference between fantasy and reality. And with that, learning to believe and remember and act on the truth that he was no longer an orphan, but he was now actually somebody's son. And that dynamic, the struggle of being in one reality, but with the mindset of a previous one, that dynamic is one that appears in the verses before us this morning, Romans 6, 8 to 14, as part of our ongoing study of this letter. Now, if this is your first Sunday with us, let me quickly bring you up to speed by telling you that the book of Romans is essentially an introductory letter from a missionary who was Paul to a church that he did not start, the Roman church, but which he was hoping to enlist the support of. The reason he needed their help was because he wanted to move his base of operations from Antioch, which was in the east, to Rome, which was further west, so that he could move out of there to places still further west and take the gospel as far as Spain. And in order to win the confidence of the Roman church, he sends them this letter, and he works very hard in this letter, which is also sort of like a resume, to show the Roman believers that he's theologically sound, that he's a trustworthy guy, and they should support him. And so it is that the bulk of this letter includes a summary statement of Paul's theology. In broad strokes, then, this is the structure of the letter so far. Chapter 1, first 15 verses, Paul is introducing himself. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he's introducing his gospel. He does that in seed form, so it's, it's very brief. And in that brief introduction, he focuses mainly on this concept of the righteousness of God. And then the first main section, 118 to 320, Paul demonstrates the universal unrighteousness of all humanity and how, as a consequence of that, all people are liable to the wrath of God. Second main section, 321 to 521, we see there God's gracious provision for all these unrighteous people just spoken about, people that cannot save themselves and who can only be made right with God by God, that is, by means of uh, the gift of God's imputed righteousness. The third main section, then, is from 6, verse 1, to the end of chapter 8. In this section, Paul's going to respond to two objections in the main. Chapter 6 is a response to the fear, the criticism, that Paul's teaching on grace is so extreme that it's going to result in moral anarchy, as people will misunderstand what Paul is saying to mean that they can sin with impunity, and worse, that they ought to sin all the more in order to further highlight the radical graciousness of God. Chapter 7 will respond to the charge that Paul's teaching disparages the law and has no use for the Mosaic law. And finally, chapter 8 will show how God, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, will actually bring about the holiness and the newness of life and will cause people to embody the things that are described and enshrined in the law, but which the law on its own cannot produce. Now this third main section, chapter 6 to 8, is the one that we dove into last week with an introductory look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. 
And there we saw that in response to this criticism, this fear that his teachings on grace would actually result in encouraging people to sin, uh, in, in response to that, Paul had several important things to say. He started out by asserting that those who belong to Christ have died to sin. And the reason they've died to sin is because they have died with Christ. And the reason they can be said to have died with Christ is because they are in Christ. And that came about when they became believers, at which point they were baptized into Him. That is, they were spiritually and vitally connected to Christ such that now they are part of the spiritual body of which He's the head. So He is the head and His people, His church, you and me, we are the body. So in short, because we are in Christ and vitally connected to Him, we died to sin because He died and He conquered sin and death. In addition to seeing all that, we also saw last week that being dead to sin does not mean that we do not and cannot sin anymore. Nor does it mean we have become unresponsive to sin. Rather, it means that we have been transferred out of the realm of sin and into a whole new realm where sin no longer is the master and therefore it does not have to be obeyed. Even further, last week's study, Paul made it clear that because of believers being united to Christ in his death and burial, they are also then united to him in his resurrection. And so as surely as Christ rose from the dead, so too must all those who are in him rise from the dead and walk in newness of life. That's the word that Paul uses. And that truth about walking in newness of life is sometimes forgotten. And judging from what I see, uh, sometimes it gets replaced with the belief that Jesus died so that we could walk not in the newness of life, but in the sameness of life. That is, without becoming more like Him. Without anything changing. With the only real difference seemingly between life before we knew Jesus and life after we've come to know Him being that we now feel free to use the grace of God in Jesus as a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card without ever having to deal with the behaviors that get us thrown into jail in the first place. Friends, that's not what our union with Christ is about. Jesus didn't die so that we could have permission to live any old life we choose. He died that we might walk in newness of life. At any rate, that was last week's study. In the verses before us this morning, we will keep addressing this criticism that his teaching on grace encourages and promotes sin. Far from doing that, far from leading people into sin, Paul's teaching and doctrine was and is intended to deliver people from it. And not just from its consequences and penalties, but also from its power, and ultimately, one day, its very presence will be gone from us. Included in today's passage, then, Paul will leave us at the end with four applications to take away, a reality to embrace, a general exhortation to uphold, some specific prohibitions to practice, and a perspective to pursue. With all that is introduction, let's pray, and we'll read the passage. Father in heaven, we are on the threshold of these verses that stand before us as your sure word to us. And Father, help us then to receive them as your word, as your truth, as that which is completely reliable, 
and trustworthy beyond anything else we know and have. Father, help us to hear things that are hard to hear. Uh, Please get behind all of our defenses. Please work on us uh, by your Holy Spirit. Please apply these truths uh, in specific ways to each one of us in this room as only you could do. And teach us as only you can by that Spirit's work within us. Father, cause us to, as a result of this, know you better and to love you more and to want that much more to be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Romans 6, starting at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now before diving into the substance of these verses, I want to take advantage of the opportunity presented by this passage to draw your attention to an aspect of Paul's teaching style that is all by itself uh, something substantial, I I think certainly worth knowing about if you don't already. And and the thing I want you to see is Paul's use here of indicatives and imperatives. What do I mean by that? Well, just this. Paul is a principle-driven guy. He's a truth-driven guy, and he wants all of his brothers and sisters in Christ to be the same way. Accordingly, his letters are full of examples of this teaching style, where he will lay out all kinds of truths. And he will then shift gears to talk about what actions and words ought to follow because of all the things that he just said were true, are true. The letter to the Ephesians is a great example of this. If you've ever read that letter straight through, the first three chapters of Ephesians are composed of pure indicatives. Right? All of these statements about what is real, what is true about God, what's true about us and the world and what God is doing, etc. Paul just keeps hammering away at them. He keeps putting them out there, one after the other, kind of piling them up, stacking them up, one on top of the other, so much so that when he gets to the end of chapter 3... He can't help himself almost, and he he breaks spontaneously into doxology, which is just a fancy word for an outburst of praise at the end of chapter 3. Just listen to a few verses from Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That burst of praise and thanksgiving there at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians just seems to erupt spontaneously from Paul as he's been stacking all these indicative truths about God one on top of the other. And then after closing out the third chapter with that doxology, after filling his readers' hearts and minds with all these wonderful and sobering foundational truths, he gets to chapter 4, and right at the beginning, he clearly, noticeably shifts gears, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, and from that point on, it is on. The remainder of the book... The last three chapters is, is just one after the other. Imperatives and commands and instructions, all of which flow directly out of this boatload of truth that he has just delivered to them. And that pattern of indicatives followed by imperatives is one that Paul consistently uses in his letters. He will almost never issue a command without first stating some indicative, some truth on which that command was based, or some reality out of which a particular instruction flowed. It wasn't Paul's practice to just tell people to do things simply because he said so. He wasn't in the habit of ordering people to do things thoughtlessly, or robotically, or unreflectively. And the reason Paul did that, I believe, is because he knew people. Paul knew that the best way to move people and to keep them moving was not by issuing a bare command, but by giving them a reason, helping them to see the bigger picture, some truth that they might embrace internally. If he could get them to see and understand uh, a deeper truth that called for a certain response, then the motivation for that person is no longer just some voice outside of his head, but something inside of that person, something that they have believed and have understood and taken ownership of. You want to motivate people, you want to move people, learn from Paul. Do it that way. And so this same pattern of issuing indicatives followed by imperatives appears in much of Paul's writing. It's been going on right here in the letter to the Romans as well. Maybe you've noticed that, maybe you haven't. And this may surprise you, but if you go back through the first five chapters of Romans, which we've done you'll discover that so far in this great letter, Paul has not issued a single command in five chapters. Not once. That's about to change. The verses before us this morning, after presenting one more indicative statement, Paul begins finally to issue some commands and instructions in the verses that follow, imperatives that flow out of all that he's been saying. And we're going to take a quick look at those imperatives, but first look at the indicative statement found and expanded upon in verses 8 to 10. Let me just read verse 8 to you again. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. There's the indicative truth. If we have died with Christ, and we have, then we will also live with Him. If the first part is true then the second part must follow. That's the truth that Paul wants his readers to latch on to. 
the verses that follow from that, from verse 8, are simply there to explain and expand on that first statement. Verses 9 to 10, Paul clarifies the fact that Christ's work on the cross was a one-time, one-shot deal. His sacrifice on the cross in our place was not like any other sacrifice in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices were temporary and had to be repeated and looked forward to that one final, perfect, all-sufficient, never-to-be-needed-again sacrifice that finally took place when Christ died on the cross. And by that one perfect sacrifice, the power of sin was broken forever. The penalty for sin was paid, death defeated, not only for Christ, but for everyone in Him, for all those for whom He suffered and died. And so when Christ was raised to life, it was to a life that would never end, in a resurrection body that was suited for life in eternity, a body that will not decay, will not break down, a body without deficit, without disease, no ailments, a body that will not wear out, a body that will not and cannot die. In other words, what he's saying is that your future, my future, the future of everyone who belongs to Jesus, all of our futures are wrapped up in Him. When you look at what happened to Christ, you are looking at your future. Christ is the head and you are incorporated into Him. You are the body of Christ. And where the head goes, the body will follow. When God raised Him to life, He was giving you a preview of what your own future will be. Raised to life with a body that will never die. Your sin penalty completely paid by Christ. Your heart completely renewed. The image of Christ perfectly formed in you, delivered from the penalty and the power, and finally, the presence of sin. That's the future. That is your future if you are in Him. That's where all of God's people are heading. And in that light, the question asked by Paul's critics back in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That question, against the background of all that Paul's saying here, is shown up for the ridiculous, absurd, groundless criticism that it truly is. Of course we aren't to continue in sin that grace may abound. Quite the opposite is true. We are to strive hard against sin precisely because grace has already been so abundantly shown to us. Which leads us then to consider the four imperatives, four commands or instructions that Paul issues on the basis of uh, all that he's been saying. The first one is found in verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In some translations, the command is more direct. Reckon yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Regarding that verse, Leon Morris has some helpful things to say. He says, the believer is to take seriously his death with Christ, verse 8, and Christ's death to sin, verse 10. Since Christ died to sin, and since the believer is dead with Christ, the believer is dead to sin, and is to recognize the fact of that death. This does not mean that he is immune to sinning, but Paul does not say that sin is dead, but that the believer is to count himself as dead to it. He feels temptation and sometimes sins, but the sin of the unbeliever is the natural consequence of the fact that he is a slave to sin, whereas the sin of the believer 
is quite out of character because he has been set free. Paul tells him that he is to recognize that where sin is concerned, he is among the dead. He has been delivered from its dominion. Once united to Christ, he must count himself as dead to the reign of sin forever. He is to reckon also that he's alive to God. His life now has a positive orientation and is directed to the highest that there is, to the service of God. So what Paul is saying is that we as believers, we need to remember and we need to live according to the truth that because of our connection with Christ, we really have died to sin. We really have been transferred from one realm where sin reigned to another realm where Christ rules and where we are free to not give in to the things that lead our hearts astray. So regardless of how you feel, regardless of how difficult it may be at times, Paul is saying here is something that is objectively true about you right now. Here is a fact upon which you can lean and which you will have to learn over time to allow this fact to continually inform your circumstances. And it's this. You have died to sin. You are no longer under its rule and reign. And so the second imperative found in verse 12 is tightly connected to that first one. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Regarding this, Lig Duncan has some helpful things to say. He says, in the Christian life, justification and sanctification are a package deal. They go together. As God grants us forgiveness and salvation, He at the same time breaks our bondage to sin. God's plan of salvation is that we would be delivered from both sin's penalty and its power. In justification, He forgives our sins and accepts us as righteous. And in sanctification, He imparts new life to us through the resurrection power of Jesus and enables us to become that which he intended us to be from the beginning. The problem is this. Many Christians want forgiveness, but they don't want holiness. They're perfectly happy being forgiven, but not holy. They're perfectly happy being accepted, but not righteous. Forgiven, but not sanctified. And the Apostle Paul does not consider that to even be a possibility if you are in Romans 6. God's forgiveness and God delivering us from the dominion of sin in our lives is a package deal. God doesn't save us so that we can be forgiven and go on in our bondage to a life of sin. He saves us to deliver us from that life of bondage. Just like the young boy in the movie, Martian Child, the, obje- the objective truth for him was that he had been adopted. He was no longer an orphan. He'd been transferred out of one realm and into an entirely new one. Nevertheless, it was going to take some time for that truth to permeate his mind and his heart. It was going to take a while for him to learn how to act according to this new reality and not simply react as if he was still in the former reality. The same thing is true for us as God's children. If we are in Christ, we have died to sin that is objectively true. We're no longer in that realm. But it will take some time for that truth to inform our present reality. 
Colossians 1.13 says the same thing. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you are discouraged and when you are defeated by that same sin that you keep getting all tangled up in, when you're beginning to doubt whether you will ever get better, whether things will ever change, you come here to Romans 6. And you remember and meditate upon and tell yourself again and again and get your friends to help you remember when you can't remember this truth. If you are Christ's, you have died to sin. It is no longer your master. It will not, it cannot ultimately lay any claim to you. And as hard as the fight is, take heart and remember this. The very fact that you are fighting and sometimes winning and at other times losing, but the very fact that you are fighting at all ought to be proof to your soul that you've been removed from the kingdom of darkness. Because if sin was still your master, if you still lived in that realm, there would be no fight. The desire to resist would be absent. So the fight may be hard, but the fight is proof that your faith is real and that you are in a new realm. That's the first two imperatives. You've died to sin, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Flee from it, resist it, fight and strain and strive against it because it cannot have you and it will not rule you. You have a new master now. John Murray says, to say to the slave who has not been emancipated, do not behave as a slave, is to mock his enslavement. But to say, do not behave as a slave to the slave who has been set free, is the necessary appeal to put into effect the privileges and rights of his liberation. The third and fourth imperatives, like the first two, are also tightly connected. Listen to verse 13. Again, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So on the heels of this kind of general exhortation to not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, Paul then issues a more specific prohibition, saying in essence, don't allow any part of yourself, which is what he means by members. Don't allow any part of yourself, your mind, your eye, your lips, your hands. Let none of these things be used as a tool for sin. Why? I think it's because, the reason I think he goes to these specifics is because that is where Satan's bid to exert his rule and reign or re-exert his rule and reign will appear. Not in a full-scale frontal assault but in a series of smaller campaigns and skirmishes. A little bit here, a little bit there. A failure to keep your eye in check. A failure to keep your tongue in check. A failure to keep your mind in check. And before you know it, the failure to win these smaller skirmishes begins to add up and take on a life of its own. And winning the overall battle of not letting sin reign in your mortal body means winning the series of smaller battles and skirmishes all along the way. 
As a contrast to this, the fourth imperative found in the second half of verse 13 is a counterpoint to the concerns voiced in the third imperative. In the first half of the verse, he says, essentially, don't let any part of yourself be used as an instrument for sin. On the contrary, as the second part of verse 13 shows, what we are to do is to bring every part of ourselves, every ability, every mental faculty, every natural gift, our eyes, ears, hands, lips, everything that we are and have into the service of God. Indeed, one of the best ways to keep from using any part of ourselves as an instrument or vehicle for sin is not by sitting around trying hard to resist sin, but conversely, by proactively and positively engaging all our faculties in the service of Christ. The more that we give ourselves to that pursuit, the fewer will be the opportunities available for obeying the thirst for sin that never seems to be very far away. The concluding words of this section then are found in verse 14 are also instructive. Listen to what Paul says. For sin will have no dominion over you since or because you are not under law but under grace. That word for at the beginning, for sin will have no dominion, that's very important. It's, uh, it's giving you the reason. And the reason for what? It's a reason for what's just been said in verse 13. Paul's just told the Romans they're to present their members, that is, every part of themselves, as instruments of righteousness for God, to bring all that they have into the service of God. And why they do this? Because of verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under law. You're under grace. In other words, the reason we are to give every part of ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness is precisely because we're not under law but under grace, a statement that seems almost counterintuitive. Because presenting every part of ourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness seems like a form of law-keeping. It seems like it's fulfilling a command, but the reason we do it, and that's what Paul's saying here, that's the point he's making, the thing that drives us to that is not the law, but in fact grace that drives us to that. The grace of God made manifest in the Lord Jesus, because at the end of the day, It is only grace that can empower you to do and be that to which the law points, but the law can never produce it. It never has, and it never will. So in these verses, we see the one indicative. If we've died with Christ, then we'll also live with Him. And following that, four imperatives. There's a reality to embrace that we must reckon ourselves as being dead to sin because, in fact, we are. A general exhortation to uphold, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Specific prohibitions to practice, not allowing any part of ourselves to be used as an instrument for sin and a perspective to pursue. Seeing every part of ourselves, using every faculty, every gift and ability as something that rather than being a vehicle for sin, our various gifts and abilities can be marshaled together and brought into the common pursuit and service of Christ. There's a lot there to think about. Let's pray together. Father, believing the things that are true is one of the hardest things for us. The gospel is one of the hardest things for us to believe. The fact that we have been 
transferred from one realm into another because of Christ is hard for us to believe and keep believing. The fact that we are vitally, spiritually connected to him is difficult for us to remember day in and day out. Father, please uh, help that reality to become a permanent part of who we are. Uh, Saturate our minds and our hearts with that truth. Uh, Allow that truth to inform our thinking and our actions and our words uh, more and more consistently. Uh, Shape us by Let us be so captivated and so convinced of these realities that it does begin to shape how we are and who we are and what we do and say and don't do and say and how we invest our lives uh, for you and in your kingdom. Father, saturate us with these things. Help us to believe them when it's hard to believe. Use us to help one another to remember these truths, that we have died to sin. And we've been transferred into your kingdom. Help us to believe it and to live as those who believe it. We thank you for this and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support this church and the various ministries that this church is supporting.